Little Rock Public Radio, this is The Art Scene. I'm Daniel Breen. We all know we're living through historic times, even though it's easy to forget sometimes. With an unprecedented pandemic, a global protest movement, and political uncertainty worldwide and right here at home, it can all seem like too much to handle. But for a second, imagine yourself as a historian 100 years from now. What would be your go-to sources to get a sense of what life was like in 2020? COVID in Black, the African-American experience in Arkansas, is a project seeking to do just that. Preserve the present for the benefit of the future. It's a new initiative by Little Rock's Mosaic Templars Cultural Center, seeking the public submissions of images, stories, objects, and anything that seems important to document the Black experience during the coronavirus pandemic. Art Scene caught up with Mosaic Templars Executive Director Christina Shutt to talk about how the project came about, and how her museum is adapting to these rapidly changing times. The Mosaic Templars Cultural Center is a state-run museum that was created in 2001. Uh, Our building was actually in the process of being renovated in 2005 when it burned in in a very tragic fire that I know a lot of Central Arkansans remember. Um, But that same group of people who had gotten together and said that they wanted to preserve the building to um, document the history of African Americans in Arkansas got together and said, hey, let's rebuild the building and make a museum that would be a dynamic and engaging place for the community. So they did that, and we reopened to the public in 2008 and have been operating ever since. Uh, The Mosaic Templars of America um, name is actually based on that organization, which was an international fraternal organization that started in 1882. And they um, started because they were looking to sell burial insurance to African Americans, um, who many insurers would not cover at that time because of racism. John Bush and Chester Keats started the organization uh, to do that. But over time, the organization expanded to um, This building housed a pharmacy and housed the NAACP uh, offices, as well as a nurse's training school. So um, pretty much anything and everything that the community needed, uh, the organization uh, housed in this space or were were responsible for bringing bringing to life. Um, At its heyday, the Mosaic Temples of America had uh, offices, organizations in 26 states um, and I believe six countries. And they still have an active chapter actually in Barbados today. So our mission is to preserve, interpret, and celebrate African-American history and culture in Arkansas. And so that's um, what we do, we talk a lot about um, the history of African Americans, African American Arkansans, and the work that they have done and continue to do to make this state uh, the place that it is today. Obviously, I mean, I don't have to tell you that we are in very uh, interesting times now in America and worldwide, of course, but um, it must be especially interesting for uh, someone who runs a museum. You know, these venues like that must be in a, a very uh, precarious state, I guess I could say, but um, I guess I would just ask how have you all had to, I guess, get creative to adapt to these changing times? Yeah, so for us, I think we're always thinking about how um, we can best not just document stories, but how can we um, continue on with our, you know, 
uh, award-winning exhibits and our programming and things like that. And so we have been, the staff have been just absolutely fantastic with um, really thinking outside the box and outside of the lines um, over what a museum can be or should be, which is something that we really strive to do um, on a regular basis around here. So I think the best example of that is we recently hosted our um, Juneteenth celebration, which is our biggest um, street festival and event that we do every year at the museum. Last year, we had 5,000 people on West 9th Street in downtown Little Rock. And this year, um, in light of COVID, we decided that it was not safe to have these kind of large gatherings of people based on the data. And so we moved the entire um, festival online (laughs) and we planned an entire Juneteenth uh, celebration in about three weeks. Um, which was, it's its kind of crazy when you think about all of the, the multitude of parts that go into to doing something like that. But I was so thrilled that we had uh, 70,000 people um, watch our Juneteenth celebration, um, which to me tells me that there are people out there that are really interested and engaged and want to know more about African-American life, culture, and history here in Arkansas. Yeah, it seems like sort of an unintended consequence of the pandemic. And I mean, I don't mean to minimize the effects of it or anything, but uh, venues and businesses, museums, things like that have had to get creative. And in doing that, it seems like you all have sort of broadened your horizons a bit or broadened your reach, I guess I could say, because of the need to make everything digital, you know? Yeah, we have. We're already planning and thinking about this fall. You know, as you know, um, school children visiting the museums um, are some of, you know, worldwide, really, uh, some of the biggest audiences that museums see. And our story is no different here. And so we've already been thinking about, you know, how can we partner with teachers to offer um, not just online content, online, um, you know, giving them a, a great lesson plan, but really offering them that experience they've come to know and love when they visit Mosaic Templars. Um, Because I think that's what so much has been lost, especially for museums. It's it's not just the the information that you get, that the information is important and vital, but it's also that experience that you have going to the museum, being a part of that community, enjoying programs, um, seeing an exhibit you maybe didn't know anything about. And so um, you lose those things when you don't get to have that that in person. So we've been thinking, well, how do we how do we capture that in an online format and and give that to people? For an organization, you know, any museum certainly is very focused on education and focused on preserving the historical past and things like that and reaching as wide an audience as possible. I think uh, I guess I would just ask, you know, what what was the sort of tipping point when you realized? Uh, for this COVID and Black project that we'll be talking about today, when when did you realize, you know, hey, we're we're kind of living in historic times currently, and what, what was sort of the the pivoting to preserving the present rather than preserving the past? For us, the past is made um, every moment, so we're making history even now as we're speaking. Um, everything, right? The past is prologue to to quote Shakespeare. Um, and so we're always thinking about how the past impacts um, even the present. So, you know, the decisions that were made yesterday imp- will impact us tomorrow, will impact us 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now. And we kind of think about history in that lens. Our interpretive philosophy here is that the African-American story is woven into the past, present, and future of Arkansas. And so for us, we really wanted to take that future piece and say, okay, this is happening now, that people are experiencing, people are capturing these moments now. And so how do we capture what 
um, definitely is a unique time in history, and not just the sort of experience of COVID and thinking about people who are sick, because I think that's often when, when folks think about capturing COVID, they think about it in that very narrow lens. But how do we color outside the lines again and say, okay, we also want to know about how it affected students who expected to be walking their graduation cap and gown? How did it affect parents who um, had to learn how to crisis school um, and balance doing work at home and uh, schooling for their kids? Or, or how did it affect grocery store workers who, you know, are, are maybe nervous because um, they're not sure if, if they're going to get sick? So we really wanted to be able to capture all of these kind of perspectives, both, like I said, for now, but this project, um, generously funded by the Arkansas Humanities Council, is a um, ongoing project. So we hope to be able to, in a few years, to capture how people remembered this event, even a few years from now, um, and then continue on that. You know, how do people think about the event 10 years from now after they've had 10 years past it? Because, again, we know people's memories uh, change, they evolve, they um, they change as they learn more, as they have time to process their emotions and their experience. So this is definitely an ongoing project for us, but um, we're excited to be able to, to be a part of this and to be a part of the community capturing this. I'm not a historian or a preservationist by any stretch of the, of the word, but um, I, I would think that maybe if you if you are you know capturing this present this living history i guess if you will um it's it seems like it would be maybe easier or more accessible it's it's not like you can go back 100 years and tell people you know this is exactly what i want you to save it's like you have to just deal with what you have what 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 has been left behind so i guess how how does that approach differ now that you can essentially tell your historical subjects like here here is what we're looking for here is um what we would like to preserve, but then how does that also, you know, affect your preservation of that? Does that change the way that you're collecting things or maybe you're more selective about it, I guess? Well, I think it gives us um, a different perspective. So if we think back to, um, you know, the 1918, the, the flu epidemic um, and that sort of worldwide pandemic that affected so many people, right? There were things that historians wish they knew now about that pandemic. And so knowing that these are the things historians wish they knew now about that has really given us perspective to say, okay, what are, what's that, that documentation, that data that we need to be collecting now? Because someone might be looking for that, you know, 100 years from now. Um, so I think history helps to give us some perspective on that. I do think that um, capturing sort of modern-day stories um, is always interesting because uh, most people, the general public, don't think about themselves as being a part of a museum. They don't think about their story being um, housed in, a, in an institution, so to speak. And so um, we often think about capturing sort of the great men of history, right, and their perspectives. But for us, I think we're interested both in the um, the leaders and, and what people are, you know, who are in these decision-making positions are doing, but we're also interested in that everyday perspective. Um, how are people every day coping with um, with COVID, with the protests, with everything that's going on in our world? Right. I mean, I, I just think that's such a fascinating, you know, idea. It's sort of like uh, uplifting, you know, the collective voice. I, I'm just wondering what, what impact do you think that will have on people? I mean, if they are 
going about life and thinking, hey, this is historic. This is going to be studied, you know, 100, 200 years from now. What, what effects do you think that will have now and today? Sure. Well, I think it encourages people to maybe save things they hadn't thought about saving. We've had a, a few people who have donated, you know, cloth masks to the museum um, because, you know, they thought, because we asked for it, and they thought, oh, this might be something someone would want to see, you know, this piece of, of clothing, of, of uniform in some case for some people, might be something that people would want to see years from now. So that kind of everyday ephemera that maybe people aren't used to, to saving or to keeping, I think it's made them a little bit more conscientious of, of those kinds of items. Um, I also think that it helps to really highlight and emphasize just how unusual um, this this time that we're living in is um, to see so many people who have tried to creatively capture uh, even graduations or capturing babies born during the season and what it means to be a, a child born um, in the midst of a pandemic. Um, it's capturing all of those, that diversity um, of story. Uh, one of the things that uh, Winston Churchill uh, said famously is that history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And, you know, um, projects like these that are really about that sort of decentralization of information, of, of capturing as many stories as possible, are about allowing people to write that history, allowing people now to say, these are the things that we want historians to remember or to know. This is the, the feelings that I had when I was um, – you know, learning from home. This is the feeling I had when I was, you know, driving the trucks to deliver supplies to hospitals or to grocery stores. Um, this is the feeling I had when someone described my job that, you know, up until a couple months ago was largely overlooked in society as an essential worker. Um, all of those kind of perspectives, I think, are, are what are going to give a, um, I won't say a complete picture, but I'll say a more complete picture, a more nuanced picture of, of this time. You're listening to The Art Scene from UA Little Rock Public Radio. I'm Daniel Brain. We're speaking with Christina Shuck, the executive director of Little Rock's Mosaic Templars Cultural Center, on their new project, COVID in Black, documenting the experience of African-American Arkansans during the coronavirus pandemic. Right, and you, you did touch on briefly just about how historical preservation and history itself, you know, informs your approach to this currently. And, uh, you know, it is a very unique thing that you're sort of crowdsourcing these historical artifacts. I, I guess I would just ask, is that your approach? I mean, is that made it more difficult to just, uh, I mean, certainly you have to narrow it down a bit, I guess. Is that a is that a struggle that you are coming across? Well, so not yet. We haven't been totally subsumed with objects. Um, you know, we don't have piles of masks um, at our door when you come in the door. Um, but I do think that what people decide to submit or not submit also tells a, a great deal about um, about the story, the things that they save or don't save. Um, we we often think about the things they save as being this sort of documentary evidence, right, of this event happened and here's evidence of it happening. But sometimes the absence of things is also evidence, right, um, in, a different, in a different way. Um, because if people don't submit those things and we think, oh, well, maybe that wasn't that important to them, right, maybe that wasn't something that um, was a story that, that rang true, right? That's what a historian might think uh, 50 or 100 years from now. If they look at, you know, here's what we have. Um, the other thing that I think it shows is that 
um, the fact that things are so um, readily available. So even getting, um, you know, if we end up with thousands and thousands and thousands of cloth masks, um, I think it also speaks to our material culture and the fact that there was, you know, there were people making all of these cloth masks. There were people um, that could afford to buy the fabric and the material um, that had sewing machines to be able to, you know, sew the mask, right? That also tells us something uh, from that sort of material culture perspective about what was available. You know, it's very different. Um, one of the collections we have here is a collection from a woman named Mary Lou Harris, and um, she reused everything. She was a very poor um, woman, lived in, in a rural county. Uh, County in Arkansas, and she, because she couldn't just go out and buy something new all the time, she constantly had to reuse. And so everything she has, all of her kitchen utensils, have been sort of kind of hobbled together um, in pieces and, and reused in different ways and shapes. Um, and so that tells us a lot about her, right? It tells us a lot about the life that she lived. So if someone came in and said, oh, well, here, I have a hundred cloth masks I'm going to give you, right? That tells us a lot about them, about the the affluence or the affordability, right, of getting access to materials. So you can learn a lot of things by what's donated and not donated. Probably if you want to Mary Lou Harris and asked her, you know, uh, what would you like to donate to this museum? She probably wouldn't think, you know, her, her kitchenware. So what what would be the... I guess advice to people who are on the fence of like what 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 is important to me in this time what what do I think should be preserved I guess I guess is that more of their decision than than yours it is, yeah. We always leave it to the, to the donor. You know, I would encourage people that if it was important to them, then it probably will be important to us, and and that's the best way to donate things to ensure that that your legacy, that your story lives beyond you. Um, we only know about uh, Mary Lee Harris because she left these objects, right? She didn't intend necessarily to donate them to the museum in her time, but because she had these objects and she left them after her death, right? That's how we know about her story because she left her writings and her journals talking about being a, um, you know, a midwife, right, as well as all the other hats that she wore. That's how we know anything about her story um, by what she left behind. So, you know, I would encourage people if you're thinking about donating, it's always better to to say to donate um, rather than to not donate. But um, but think about it from a perspective of um, what was important to me. You know, was it is it important to me to have a photo of my graduation uh, picture? Right? Is that an important object for me? Um, well, then that's something that the museum would definitely be interested in having. You did touch briefly on the fact that you all are collecting objects, and then that could farther down the line be, you know, interpreted as like a commentary on on materialism in America. I just, I guess, I did want to get into the deeper part of the conversation, just asking about sort of the COVID nineteen pandemic as a whole, as just being. Uh, I mean, I guess I've I've heard of it as being sort of this great equalizer and exposing you know inequality and injustices in America. I'm just wondering what uh, what what steps do you think uh, will be taken as a result of the pandemic, or what what will be the sort of historical commentary on on that side of it? Sure. Well, I definitely think that. Um you know, the, the pandemic in particular has exposed um, the inequality, um, especially around health care, around access to um, affordable, quality um, 
health and health-related things. Um, it's exposed uh, about food deserts. So it's, it's digging deeper, right, of not just asking the question of why uh, have African Americans been disproportionately affected by um, COVID, right, by, by getting the disease, by knowing, uh, you know, more people that have it. Um, it's looking deeper and saying, okay, well, if you say that it's because of pre-existing conditions, well, then why do those pre-existing conditions exist? What's at the 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 root, right? If we get a shovel and we we dig down a little bit deeper, what's what's at the root of those pre-existing conditions? You know, is it things like food deserts? Is it things like um, you know racist policies um, in place that prevent African Americans from having access? Um, to certain certain things. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, historians in the future will have um, a, a wealth of information, hopefully, um, available to them to really explore, to think about um, the pandemic, to think about the ways in which it's affected communities of color, um, but also to think about uh, what we did after. So it's not just of what we're doing now, but, but how do we come out of this pandemic? What comes next for us? Is this something that even now as we're learning um, in a kind of fast-paced, you know, deep end of the pool way, how do we move forward um, from it? What are the policies or the things that we want to change in our communities uh, to make the world more equitable, to make the story different um, next time? As you said, you know, we're still in in the thick of it, essentially. But uh, I guess just, you know, yourself speaking as a historian, I guess, what would you say uh, would be the, the historical lens that, you know, future historians would be looking at the stuff that you all are collecting right now, how would they view those things and say, oh, this is how this community was impacted negatively, specifically by this by this pandemic that happened? You know, I think one of the things that, you know, we've heard so many um, horrible stories, right? You think about the overcrowded hospitals, you know, in terms of the national stories that are going on, you think about just the sheer number of deaths, right? All of that kind of stuff. So you hear this, this story of immense oppression, this immense... Um, you know, again, death. And I think one of the things that the collection um, will show that as we're collecting these things is survival as well. Um, at the museum, we don't think about uh, oppression as separate from that. Oppression only, um, you, you have oppression on one hand, but you also have survival on the other. And so seeing that people are still finding community, that they are still finding life, that they are still finding um, network and hope and joy, um, even in the midst of a pandemic, right? Uh, we had someone donate a mask that was like all um, decked out in her uh, sorority colors. And one of the things that I love about it is it's a reminder, right, that people were still trying to be stylish. <laughs> in the midst of a pandemic, they still found um, an excuse to be stylish. Or you think about, I, I can't wait to see what artwork comes out of the pandemic, right, of people um, processing um kind of chewing on, thinking about their experience and what artists are going to create um, in terms of, you know, visual meetings, what uh, photographers have captured already and are continuing to capture that unique lens and that perspective as they document this. So I think it'll be really interesting. I think they'll see, you know, I know a lot of people, um, other colleagues around the country have been collecting as well. So I think getting this kind of such a wide snapshot will be a really interesting perspective to look at and to see, you know, were there themes in Arkansas and that we can learn from 
the collections in Arkansas that were also carried forth in California or in Washington, D.C. or in Montana? You know, are we seeing uh, similar threads in some of these stories? You know, the notion of survival, you know, one can't help but think of the, the recent protest movements and just it's just this juxtaposition of the largest protest movement in American history happening at the same time of this this pandemic where we're all supposed to be, you know, sequestered and quarantined and not, you know, not protesting essentially. But, you know, it's yeah. when you hear all of these stories from protesters who are just saying, you know, this is a matter of survival. This is the way that, you know, we we've exhausted every other option. And this is just the way that we we have to ensure our survival by risking our, our personal health, essentially. I guess yeah. I I just would ask what what do you you personally you know what is your opinion on that was that sort of was the pandemic sort of a catalyst to that or what is what I guess again how would historians view that in uh, those two you know movements in relation to each other so I, I definitely think that um, they are. Uh, very much related to one another. You know, you've got people that are that are sitting at home that were sequestered, right? And they're seeing um, all of this black death streaming through their social media platforms, streaming through their TV. And for many people, they have, um, you know, the space to watch that um, and to see those sort of horrifying acts in much a, a similar vein as you think about the, the modern civil rights movement and um, seeing water hoses, right, um, or dogs being being set towards protesters, um, which is, of course, then sport, spurs more protests, right? Um, so I do think that there is a, a direct correlation, especially with, you know, a lot of young people. I think I've seen more young people in photographs um, and, like, middle school, high school age young people um, out in the streets protesting. And, you know, if they're, if they're not able to go to schools, right, then, um, again, they're they're watching these things. They're moved by um, by this black death and really wanting to, to let their voice be heard. I also don't think we can um, underestimate the fact that you know, black activists, activists of color, have um, you know been marching, been um, working right um, towards this moment for for decades, right, for for many years, and so um, it's a another kind of point. I, I hesitate to say like culmination, right, because it doesn't stop, but it's a another sort of maybe benchmark or point in in that movement, in their own uh, fight towards equity. Um, the other thing is that I think worldwide we've seen a lot more protests um, in terms of, I'm thinking back, you know, early on, right, to the, the women's rally, to, you know, um, march for, uh, you know, protest for science. So I think people have been more interested in getting into the streets, into marching, um, into being kind of politically active, um, and to letting their voice be heard in, in terms of the kind of sheer numbers of things. I also think that, you know, as you kind of alluded to, that as people are saying, right, that I'm already in a life or death situation um, with COVID. And so um, being in that life or death situation with COVID as well, as um, you think about uh, just, again, the violence and other things, um, so it's that letting their voice be heard, letting people know that um, that they're tired of it, that they're exhausted um, from that. So I, I think that's one of the things that we're seeing. Again, it'll be interesting to see what 20 years from now, um, histori other historians think back to this moment and, and how they capture it, and if they find even more correlations between the protest and between um, you know, the pandemic. The common 
criticism of protests or, you know, even from protesters themselves is like, you know, will will this work? Will will people in power hear me and do anything about it? I, I guess I just would ask you personally, what do you think is, I guess, missing from the, the national conversation? I guess maybe, you know, about race and about COVID. And I, I guess where do you not to ask you to predict the future or anything, but <laughs> I guess where, where would you anticipate that conversation going? Yeah, well, I, I think um, for sure that the, the conversation definitely at some point has to go to these real systemic changes, right? It's great to say people um, show up to marches, show up to rallies, um, want to push uh, elected officials, but I think it's you've also got to see um, the works behind it. You've got to see real change um, being made in systems of government and um, really all sectors of life, right? Um, seeing it made in uh, social circles, seeing it made in churches, you know, in every kind of place that people interact in, um, see these these systems of oppression um, being dismantled, that, that that has to be the next stage, right? Or else it will just become another moment in time in which we saw people out in the streets, but but nothing nothing became of it. Right. It's kind of like, um, you know, as we were talking earlier about just the um, getting to the root of why are more black people dying of COVID um, than other um, races or ethnicities, right? Um, we can't just say, oh, it's because black people have pre-existing conditions. Well, why do more black people have pre-existing conditions? What are the roots of those things? How do we get beneath um, that surface level? And if we can get to the root of those problems, if we can begin to solve some of those problems, then maybe um, you know we'll be able to, to truly create a more just and equitable world. Christina Schutt, Executive Director of Little Rock's Mosaic Templars Cultural Center, speaking about their new project titled COVID in Black, the African-American Experience in Arkansas. You can find more information and submit your materials online at mosaictemplarcenter.com. And that's our show for this week. Please tune in next week at the same time. I'm Daniel Brain, and the art scene is a presentation of UA Little Rock Public Radio.